welcome to the last episode here of season three. Hard to believe we've had another great season, but don't worry, this one is going to be a good one. I'm your host, Delaney Howell, and on today's episode, we wrap up our four-part series focused on heat stress. Discussing specifically today in utero heat stress with Dr. Lance Baumgard, the Jacobson Endowed Professor and a Distinguished Professor at Iowa State University, and Dr. Jason Ross, the Department Chair of Animal Science, and the Lloyd Anderson Endowed Professor in Physiology. Before we dig into today's topic, looking at some of the in utero heat stress research, endocrine regulation, and the impact this plays related to leaky gut, let's take a quick moment to reflect on why this grant was pieced together focused on heat stress. It's a combined grant, so deliberately there are some basic biological questions that we'll be addressing and some applied questions that we'll be addressing. And then we have an extension component to help share our results with producers. So the the first part of the grant is a fairly intensive experiment where we're focused on a select number of animals and asking some really in-depth biological questions about how heat stress is affecting separately barrows and gilts, um, their muscles and endocrine systems and a variety of other uh, variables that we're interested in, including a, a whole a whole slew of production metrics. And then in the second phase of the grant, what we're doing is scaling up to production level outcomes where we're interested in asking the question at the production level, at the systems level, do we actually see changes in biological sex um, in terms of production metrics? And then the last part of the grant is focused specifically with sharing our research outcomes with producers. Josh, why did you feel like heat stress was the area that made the most sense to focus on? I just find the biology and the physiology of heat stress fascinating. It's one of those few things that impacts the animal systemically. And then also you can explore each tissue with with extraordinary depth. And for me, muscle is the most exciting tissue. And so it was a natural marriage of idea and opportunity. And I was we we're fortunate enough to be awarded the grant to pursue it. One more quick refresher for all of our PigX listeners before we dive into any new information this month. Let's go back to a conversation with Dr. Kara Stewart to do a quick recap about what exactly heat stress is. You think about specifically heat stress and the boar. Um, when an animal, any animal experiences heat, they end up panting. So they do things to modify their behaviors typically first to adjust to the um, increase in environmental temperature, right? So that's usually panting, maybe laying down more so they aren't expending a lot of energy. Um, And then when that doesn't work and their body temperature continues to go up, they start to actually divert blood flow to their extremities to try to dissipate that heat that's kind of building up in their core body. When that happens, we start to see some big physiological changes where it ends up sort of giving some oxygen depletion to the gut and those centralized organs in order to send the blood flow to the extremities to try to get rid of the heat. When that happens, we end up having some changes at the level of the gut that are not so good for the animal. So maybe you've heard of the term leaky gut, but what we get is like a breakdown of the enterocytes in 
in the gut that allows some toxins and things to come in and leads to poor nutrient absorption at that point. So when we get to that point, I think that's where you would consider the animal under some pretty good stress. And then they start to reduce their feed intake and that will end up trickling down the line here to affecting reproduction, whether it's a sow or a boar. Um, Once we get to the point that they are having a little breakdown in their gut, going off of feed or reducing their feed intake, um, they will really start to show negative impacts on reproduction. After the break, we dive into our conversation. Lance, let's dig into this conversation by addressing specifically first, what is in utero heat stress? Yeah, that's a great question because we're all familiar with the negative consequences of heat stress on growing pigs, especially market market weight hogs. And of course, all of the estimates on the negative consequences with regards to economics is focused on that real finished pig. But we know now, based upon a variety of research projects we've done here at Iowa State, that there's a lot of negative consequences to heat stress in utero. So that pregnant sow, her piglets, her fetal piglets who are experiencing heat stress, there is a large amount of negative phenotypes that cause producers money once they be, once after fair weaning they're they're alive postnatal development. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on, Lance. And the other piece of that too is when we think a lot about the heat stress that affects the breeding herd. Traditionally, all the the economics of that was we attributed it to seasonal infertility and the loss of reproduction, the increased wean to estrus intervals for sows that were weaned during the hot summer months the reduced conception rates, the reduced litter sizes, that's all accounted for in the economic modeling. But, you know, what we didn't really account for until we started looking at it from a scientific approach and experimentally is that there's ramifications for what happens to the piglets when that are, that are going through gestation in the hot summer months and that there, there are impacts and implications for how those pigs develop. And it lasts a lifetime, as Lance was pointing out. And, you know, the we were interested in that, you know, fundamentally is what causes that and also, you know, how big is that impact? And so we had done a couple different studies here in uh, about a decade ago, honestly, when we first started hypothesizing in utero exposure to heat stress could affect the piglet's performance postnatally. And so we we did, you know, a pretty elaborate experiment where we exposed sows to heat stress at different stages of gestation. So some sows we would expose to heat stress during the first half of gestation. Some sows we would only expose them to heat stress during the second half of gestation. And then some would be exposed for the entire length of gestation. And what we found is that those piglets uh, that were born to those sows uh, actually had differences in their body composition later in life. And Jason, don't mean to cut you off here, but I think a good insert here would be to talk a little bit about what actually are phenotypes in this context. We're talking about is really a few different ones, right? One of them is just the body composition as a phenotype, how much lean muscle the, the pig has accumulated, how much back fat thickness the pig has. And then, and also for this, for some of this initial work, you know, how much circulating insulin is in, in that pig. And so those are really the, 
the visual observations, the physical characteristics that we'd also recall a phenotype uh, for what we're referring to. Which kind of stems from the genotype. Yes. Yep, so yep. you have the genotype, genetic fingerprint that then translates into a phenotype. So when we look at the phenotype and its impact of in utero heat stress, talk to us about some of the research that has been done so far. The fetal pig is quite interesting. The fetus, any fetus is quite interesting from a thermal regulatory perspective because they are unable to modify their behavior. They're not able to dissipate heat. So they're completely dependent upon the mother to get rid of the heat that they produce. And of course, the growing fetus generates an enormous amount of heat. So in thermal neutral conditions, the mother will reduce her body temperature by almost a degree Fahrenheit. Mm. And then her reduced body temperature of a degree Fahrenheit allows them for heat to be dissipated or to leave the fetus uh, and to eventually leave the, the dam. So during heat stress, the sow, the, the mother's body temperature increases, and now the, the gradient to get rid of heat, to dissipate heat for the growing fetus is, is compromised. There's no choice but to get hotter. Anyway, I think that's always something interesting. So we, what we did, a group of us, back in 2010, 11, that, Jason? Yeah, right around that. You and I, Nick Gabler, Rob Rhodes, is kind of the core, next to Josh Shelsby, had some hypotheses on heat stress that we were kind of stealing a page from the playbook of poultry. Mm -hmm. So in poultry, they can take the egg and incubate it at different temperatures to improve the thermal tolerance to a future heat wave um, once the, it becomes a chicken. So we kind of thought the same thing might happen in a pig. So developed these models, like Jason was saying, where we heat stress sows, gestating sows at different stages of gestation. Once the piglets were born, and we, we collaborated with the University of Missouri on those types of experiments. And the piglets that were born at the University of Missouri came up to Iowa State. A couple of interesting things. One of the very first experiments we did uh, was just simply look at production, growth, back fat thickness, metabolism, and the endocrine response to that. And one of our very first papers on this, we reported that if piglets were derived at any stage of their gestation from a heat-stressed mother, their back fat thickness was higher, bigger, thicker than the thermal neutral controls, which we thought was quite interesting. And that their circulating insulin levels, which is a hormone that's very anabolic, it's very lipogenic hormone, was higher in circulation than the, than the controls. So here we have piglets, pigs that were three, four months uh, old. So the insult on their mother was four months in some instances, seven months ago, and their endocrine response was that they cared, they had higher levels of insulin their whole lives. And we think this has been responsible for this increase in back fat thickness that they also had. And of course, synthesizing and positing fat is an inefficient use of nutrients. Yeah, I think that that was a big aha moment, I think, in that mm -hmm. in that phase of research that then has subsequently opened up a lot of work in that field. And you know, the other, as Lance pointed out, the insult came several months earlier. And, and really, when you look within the window of gestation, what our data would suggest, it was actually those sows, when heat stress was applied in the first half of gestation, was more impactful on the postnatal piglet than heat stress in the second half of gestation. And that, you know, speaks a little bit to, you know, the developmental process 
and the differentiation of different cells, how cells that are uh, undergoing differentiation in a developing embryo and a developing fetus undergo programming, molecular programming, epigenetic programming, and that they're much more vulnerable to uh, imprinting impacts of the environment early in the developmental process than, than in late gestation in this case, especially with respect to heat stress at least. So Jason and Lance, we've been talking a lot, but we keep coming back to discussing the various experiments and research that's been done related to heat stress in utero, heat stress specifically here, during different periods of gestation, different lengths during that gestation. How did you come to the conclusion that the first half of gestation is when a developing fetus is the most vulnerable to heat stress? Yeah, so what, when we did that experiment, you know, we had some sows that only had heat stress exposure during the first half of gestation, some only during the second half of gestation, and some during the entire length of gestation. And, and what we found, the reason we believe that the first part of pregnancy is the most vulnerable is because the it was only in those sows that were heat stressed the entire length of gestation or just the first half of gestation, their piglets had a very similar response. And the sows that were never exposed to heat stress in comparison to those that were only exposed to heat stress in the second half of gestation, right? So they were also in thermal neutral environments their first half of gestation. Their piglets had no differences. Collectively, then we were able to look at, you know, if a sow was exposed to heat stress only during the first half of gestation, that that's where the greatest implications were for affecting piglet performance. And I imagine as a scientist, you're always asking yourself, are these results accurate? Can I replicate them? Jason, were these results able to be replicated? Every scientist should challenge their observations and ask themselves, is, especially when you see something unique like this, is this, is this true? And uh, one of Lance's graduate students at the time, Jay Johnson, did a follow-up study. We replicated the exact experiment, except in, in an effort to reduce the number of gestation treatments. We just had sows that were in utero heat stress the entire length of gestation or sows that were never exposed to heat stress. Then Jay went through and, and really did a... Used an, Rather than using ultrasound and blood work, actually used ground up the entire carcasses of the progeny and did a full composition, chemical composition analysis of those piglets and validated that during those progeny when uh, in the lipid accretion phase, that 60 to 90 kilogram phase, those were the ones that were accumulating adipose tissue at a greater rate if they were exposed to heat stress in utero compared to those that were not. And so I think that was the second time, you know, using two different methods of evaluating the progeny and then, you know, replicating and seeing the same observations, I think was, was reassuring that there was some significant observations there. And, you know, I remember giving a presentation in Australia in 2015 and sharing some of this data. And a gentleman from a larger company in Australia came up and said, this, this data makes perfect sense. You know, one of the things that we see in our plants is that certain seasons we see body compositions change. We see shifts in body compositions change in the plant. We've never been able to make sense of it. When we see the body composition shifts in the plant, it goes back to when those pigs were gestated in utero, the first half of gestation. And so I think Lance has had a similar similar uh, experiences with others with anecdotal uh, observations as well. When you think about the timing of it, right? So uh, in utero, heat stress piglet wouldn't go to market until probably February. So now the snow is flying, it's cold, 
and the, the packing plant is noticing a fatter carcass, and they're not putting two and two together, or no one would, who can't blame them for not recognizing that this negative phenotype was caused by heat uh, eight months ago. Part of the other physiological effects then are impact on reproduction. And you also had shared infertility specifically. So I'm curious, is that infertility piece related to the sow that went through the heat stress or the piglet that she's had that then eventually goes through reproduction itself in the future? Well, that's two good questions. The first one I think we have a little better handle on is how is the sow that's experiencing heat stress What's her, you know, reproductive capability during that period, during that season, during the hot season? And one of the things that we've done is we've looked at some different data, different systems. And for example, we went and collected a lot, collected a lot of data on some first parity gilts during seasonal infertility. And what we saw is that, you know, during weeks 28 to 32, which would be calendar weeks 28 to 32, which would be roughly... July, mid-July through mid-August. And what we saw is that those sows that go through gestation and then farrow in July and August, when they are weaned, their weaned to estrus interval is much longer. Their conception rate is significantly lower. And the number of pigs they produce per litter is, is lower compared to sows of the same parity, you know, six months later in March. That's a very vulnerable vulnerable time for those sows as well. It's a complicated factor. I don't think I fully grasp all the nuances that go into, into that, just because I think a lot of them are still unknown. But a, a big piece of that is, you know, feed intake during lactation and how the season affects feed intake and, and the temperature in the room during, during lactation. I think that has significant implications. And then when those sows are weaned into and moved into... Uh, gestation house again, you know, all of that environmental conditions around that period of time, I think have have significant implications for ovarian function, oocyte quality. And we've done some molecular work around that and can show very consistently that even using pig oocytes in vitro, so in an incubator, we can make specific small incremental changes in the temperature of the incubator that we culture pig oocytes in, and they're very susceptible to heat stress as the oocyte undergoes its final stages of maturation. So, so there's a lot of factors, I think, that contribute to that loss of reproductive ability in the, in the summertime. Some of it is heat. Some of it is probably insulin-driven. Some of it is probably other endocrine hormones that are contributing to you know, that sow's overall biological capacity to undergo a normal wean to estrus cycle and produce, you know, a follicular cohort that's capable of being fertilized and producing piglets. What about specifically leaky gut and that being a mechanism that affects reproduction? Yeah. So a group of us here at Iowa have been working on this heat-induced leaky gut. So when that when an animal becomes heat stressed, not just pigs, but all animals, there's increased permeability of the intestine. Now you have all sorts of antigens that infiltrate through the barrier of the of the gut and stimulate an immune response. And part of that immune response is an increase in, in insulin. And then how that connects with uh, reproduction, both Jason and, and Aileen Keating have both written some nice reviews talking about how both endotoxemia, which is caused by leaky gut, and this hyperinsulinemia 
uh, negatively affect meat production. So it's difficult to tweeze out one or the other or if it's a combination of both, but many of the negative consequences of heat stress can be traced back to this immune activating event that occurs in the gut. Yeah, and one of those, I think, as it relates back to the ovary, what Lance is describing with endotoxins getting through the intestinal barrier is that you know, some of the work we've done in, in collaboration with Aileen Keating in our department, she's led several efforts in trying to understand the ovarian response to heat stress. And so while you would see typical things like increased expression of heat shock proteins and other, other molecular events, we've also demonstrated that the ovary and the oocyte themselves are sensitive to insulin signaling pathways as well as endotoxin stimulation because both cells in the ovary and the oocyte themselves express receptors, the toll-like receptor 4, which is the primary receptor for endotoxins, so one of the primary receptors. So now that we've talked about body composition in relation to in utero heat stress, what about metabolism? How is that affected during in utero heat stress? Well, interestingly, like I said, in poultry, they will heat stress or thermal, thermal challenge the the egg, and then the chicken that develops from that egg is more thermal tolerant. So we kind of thought the same thing would happen in pigs, but just the opposite. Piglets derived from a heat stress mother, they're not able to thermal regulate as well as piglets derived from a thermal neutral mother. So then this implies that, um, you know, they're more sensitive to heat stress when they become adults or during, during growth. So you know, clearly, there's some large differences between how species respond to in utero or fetal heat stress. In this case, in pigs, we're fairly confident that their ability to respond to a heat stress event during postnatal development is compromised. I, again, I think this is primarily driven by insulin. And of course, insulin is a master regulator of, of metabolism. And so postnatal pigs... If they were exposed to heat stress in utero, will have increased levels of insulin their entire lives. And because insulin is such a potent stimulator of adipose tissue or back fat accretion, we think this in large part explains why in utero pigs that were heat stressed go on to have a fatter carcass and they're less efficient. Less efficient for a couple of reasons. One, they're making more fat, which is not very efficient. And two, they have a higher body temperature. And that thermal energy has to come from feed energy. And of course, feed energy is purchased by the farmer. So there's two main reasons why a piglet that's coming from a heat stress dam is less efficient in postnatal development. So obviously you guys have done quite a bit of research in this space, but what other additional research do you feel like is important? Or what are some of those big questions we still don't have complete answers on yet? That's a good question. I think, you know, from a producer's perspective, if we if we had a better understanding of when investment into cooling should take place, when and where, where and during gestation is your best best return on an investment. So if cooling for three months, three weeks, and three days, adjusting the sow is going to be incredibly expensive. But maybe there's a small window of time where you can invest in cooling and get a large return on your investment in postnatal development. We don't know when that is yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's some big opportunity ahead too. Yeah, it's digging into you know some of the developmental timeframes and windows in that first half of gestation where the where the fetus is 
most dramatically affected by the environment that the dam is in. Because as Lance points out, that's knowing that window and refining what we know about that window is where producers then can make decisions about mitigation strategies to minimize the impacts of heat on sows during gestation. I think the other thing it, it underscores is it's an example, this product, you know, this this work, this body of work, you know, that others have been contributing to as well, really underscores that there's a lot of the a lot of the pig's life, right? We once a pig's born, it spends 114, 116 days in gestation, and then, you know, maybe 150 days, 180 days postnatally that we manage it very intentionally, right? And go through different phases of different diets. But we really don't know how to manage that piglet's growth from conception until parturition or, you know, farrowing. And I think that's one thing that some of this work opens up is it just demonstrates the plasticity of the piglet, the developing piglet, and the opportunities to try and maximize its potential uh, and that there's events that happen during gestation that take away from that piglet's potential to to perform well after birth and to be you know a productive efficient animal awesome well jason lance i think we're at the final stretch of our episode here and this is the point where we really like to share a take-home message with our listeners what's one thing to keep in mind when considering in utero heat stress the economic impact it has or just some of the indicators to watch for at home yeah, that's a tough when you when you think about the in utero impacts of heat stress or even just the capacity to alter piglet programming right in utero prior to parturition there's still a lot a lot to be learned no doubt i mean it's a tremendous depth of information that's just not been explored and and part of that's i think the way the uh industry structured right the way even the way barns have been designed in the past and the way we manage sows and the way we manage gestating sows has not lended itself that if we have that information that we could change feeding strategies or change management strategies very easily. But I do think from a, from a production perspective, from a producer perspective, some of the changes that have been happening in the industry, you know, transition to many folks have gone to loose housing gestation. Many have gone to, you know, electronic sow feeding systems, you know, when fully employed and with with a little further modification would allow managing sows differently at different stages of gestation. And I think now that we're getting that capacity and moving towards that capacity at a greater level in the industry, it's going to open up a lot of opportunities for research in this area, knowing that as we learn more, we're going to have the infrastructure in place to employ some mitigation strategies or some strategies to maximize returns based on the positive implications, maybe certain treatments or certain management strategies during different stages of gestation might, might uh, create. It's such an open area. There's so much to be learned still. How to maximize the piglet's potential beginning at conception. And I think that's, you know, there's all kinds of heat stress is one major influencer, and we can we can recognize that pretty quickly. But there's a lot of other environmental and management practices, I think, that um, as we continue to learn more and appreciate more that what happens in utero doesn't necessarily stay in utero, right? It's it's going to have lifelong implications for those piglets. And I think that's 
think that's the take-home message is that there's just, this data really supports that there's a big opportunity to learn more, but also hopefully to gain a lot more from a production efficiency standpoint. What an action-packed episode to wrap up season three of the PigX podcast. A big thank you to all of our season three guests and a big thank you to you, our listeners. If you've enjoyed season three of the PigX podcast, be sure to leave us a rating and submit a comment or shoot us a note at piglivability.org. Season four kicks off next month. So until next time, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX podcast. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. PigX. Ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.